Section 10A of Bible Defense of Slavery by Josiah Priest. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 10. Having, in the preceding section, treated on the mental inequality of the Negro man compared with white men, we shall now pass to the subject of amalgamating the two races, a thing which, in the minds of some persons, greatly to be desired, as in that way a universal equality would be made out. That the amalgamation of the two colors, black and white, were not designed by the Creator, is evident from the very existence of those two complexions. Had God been pleased to view the whole human race as possessing but one hue of complexion, he would never have produced more than that one, whether it might have been black, white, or red, or any other color as green or blue. But if it is said that the amalgamation of the races would be proper and not displeasing to the Supreme Being, then it would follow that he is not displeased with the overturn, subversion, and adulteration of the works of his own hands or power and the ruin of first principles implanted in the forms and colors of things created. That there should be in nature distinctions of this character are essential to order, to beauty, and classification. Without this trait of the divine operations, all nature would be but one universal blot, a vast compound of sameness the earth would have no charms. There would be no distinction of color between land and water. The green grass of the meadows and mountains, the leaves and flowers of all forests, the tints and hues of all minerals, the colors of various animals, as well as of the human race, would become blended and confused in one great chaotic mass so far as colors are concerned, in the existence of things. Had not God, therefore, have seen that all beings of animal natures, and all substances which make out the multitudinous amount of earth's productions and inhabitants, should be distinguished for the sake of order, identification, and beauty, by a countless train of tints, hues, and colors, it would not have been thus produced. It is, therefore, from this view, at once evident that as God did make the two complexions of black and white originally, which characterize two races of men, that it is, therefore, no less a sin than sacrilege to amalgamate them, thereby destroying God's work and supplying the ruin with adulterations. But when it is considered that there are connected with those two complexions, two races of men differing as much in their mental faculties as they do in color and formation, and that these mental faculties, colors and formations, depend, for their continuance, upon the preservation of their respective attributes in those particulars, it furnishes a mighty reason why the whites and blacks should not mingle races, 
and thereby sin against God in the mutilation of the original order. If by amalgamating the two races, the native intellectuality of the whites becomes deteriorated, the reason why so monstrous an innovation on the rights of God should not be committed is still more glaring. Is it wise, for the sake of elevating the Negro race, to make so great a sacrifice as the destruction of the white man from the earth? If so, let them amalgamate. The road is open and broad. Against such a course, on the part of the African, we have heard of no objections, and but little from abolitionists. Were the races universally, by amalgamation, to mingle, the effect would be the destruction to both colors, the black and the white, and a new one, which God never created, take the place of the others, and this would be a dingy yellow, called the mulatto. The present heaven-approved form and complexion of the white race would be handed to posterity, through the dark medium of negro blood, stained, obscured, and confused. Their complexion would be but half white, the covering of their heads neither wool nor hair, their noses flattened and made wider, their mouths vastly extended, the temples narrowed and sunken, the forehead lowered and slanted backward, the contour of the head elongated, monkey-like, the eyes eclipsed of intelligence and made glossy like the eyes of animals, the underjaw protruded, the teeth set laterally, the waist narrowed, the chest widened, the posteriors pointed and lifted up, the foot enlarged and made spongy on the outer sides, the heel set backward, the calf of the leg taken away, the shin-bone made convex, the skull thickened, the lips pouted forward, the cheek-bones lifted up, and the whole external of the progeny become changed and merged in Egyptian darkness. But the above changes are not all the horrors which amalgamation produces, as the passions and mental faculties become remodeled and changed to other characters, as presented in the mulatto race of Negroes. There is an increased disposition to untamable and unrestrained lewdness, to treachery, to insensibility of feeling, to the want of high and manly sentiment. There is seen in this character, as in the real black man, a proneness to loud and senseless laughter, an extraordinary desire to whistle and sing, especially when in circumstances of labor and servitude. The fancies of the mind undergo a change also, in relation to colors, as the negro's eye is powerfully attracted by the red and yellow in the decorations of their bodies. The powers of the appetite are also increased, so that several kinds of food, abhorrent to a white man's palate, comes not amiss, as is seen among the wild people of Africa, whether black, brown, or yellow. The feeling of love for children 
in the light of a desire of their mental improvement, is as manifested by the white race, in a great measure, ceases to exist, and in its place springs up a happy indifference on this important matter. All this, and much more than we have words to express, as seen in the whole negro character, would be the fearful result of lowering the standard of the human mind, as now possessed by the whites, by amalgamating the blood of the races. That such would be the consequence is as sure as is cause and effect, for it is a physiological fact that the brain of all negroes is less in size and weight than the brain of white men by more than one-eighth. This is known by actual examination of the heads of the two races. See Bingham on the Brain, page 21. In connection with this appalling truth, it is found also that the arms of the Negro race are longer than the arms of the whites, holding a midway relation between white men and monkeys in this particular. This was found to be so by Dr. White, who measured the arms of nearly fifty Negro skeletons, and in all cases were found to have longer arms than whites of the same height of persons. See Lawrence's Lectures on the History of Man, page 350. The whole character of the flesh of the Negro race, as well as their nerves, seems to be of a coarser character, less fine and delicate than is the flesh and nerves of the white race, the skin of their bodies is thicker and heavier than is the whites, especially about the head. Respecting the females of the African race, it is said that their breasts grow to monstrous sizes, hanging down even below their waists. Lawrence's Lectures, page 359. This would be a beautiful trait of symmetry to be added to the female portion of the whites were the amalgamation of the races to become universal. It is said, by those skilled in surgical operations and dissections of the human body, that the flesh of negroes, from the outside to the bone, is of a darker color, as well as the blood, than the flesh and blood of white men. And why should not this be so, as the character or animal, if we may so speak, is wholly a different creature from the white human animal. In relation to the lower orders of animals, is it not true that there is a great difference in the texture and nature of their flesh in many particulars? This is known to the most unobserving, and why should it be wondered at, when we assert that the same rule or circumstance exists between white men and negroes, and quite as much as their looks indicate. Amalgamation with them, therefore, proposes not only the blackening of the skin, but of the blood and flesh, even to the bone, as well as the deterioration of the mental faculties of the progeny of the whites. It is stated by Herodotus, that the very semen of the African Negro, in his time, was black, which is equally true at the present, 
or at least it is of a dark bluish tinge, of which any man may convince himself, if he is deeply desirous of physiological information. Would not such a course be a species of blasphemy by despising the image of God, which is intellectuality, given to the keeping of the white race more than to the blacks? To cast away, therefore, any portion of this image or likeness of God would be a deed too horrible for contemplation. Any mingling of the blood of the blacks with the whites is considered by Professor Lawrence a deterioration of the mental powers of the progeny produced. But, says one, an admirer of the Negro race, it has never entered the heart of abolitionism to justify or aid in the actual amalgamation of the two races. We have only pleaded for aided and abetted the doctrine of the Negro's natural and perfect equality with white men, as to their right to freedom and equality, with regard to slavery, their mental faculties and claim of political elevation in human society. Very well, this you have done, as all the world knows. But what is the tendency of such a doctrine? Is it not the high road to amalgamation? If the Negro race in Christendom are elevated to a parallel politically with white men, will they not, therefore, with this elevation, were it to be effected, become eligible for political offices, and thus establish the principle on which the election of Negro magistrates, judges, legislators, and governors, with any and all the offices of the civilized world, could be effected? Let this principle of political equality become once established in relation to the blacks. Would not the odium of marriages between the races be greatly lessened? Would not facilities be afforded to the Negro race of mingling on equal terms with the whites in relation to all the immunities of society? If so, then would there not be removed out of the way, in the estimation of millions, one great obstacle to amalgamation by marriages between the races? What propriety, therefore, is there in the pretense of some abolitionists that they by no means plead for amalgamation, while they approve of principles and acts which have for their certain result the amalgamation of black and white in one great and common community. But as dreadful as is the contemplation of such a state of human society, there are thousands in the United States who, in the fierceness of their zeal for the Negro's mere liberty, would happily forego the loss of half their mental powers and their white complexion to boot if they could but bring about this famous equality, and thus make an end of slavery. In various conversations which the writer has had with violent abolitionists, we have inquired of them whether, in order to carry out their belief of the Negro's absolute equality with white men, 
they were willing that a son or a daughter of theirs should be united with them in marriage to this question we could seldom receive a direct answer either yes or no but were generally met by equivocation as follows pray sir is there any law human or divine against such marriages here we would urge all the dissimilarities of the two races in their faculties passions appetites formation color looks and smell again repeating the question would you be willing that a son or a daughter of yours should marry a negro but receiving almost always the same shuffling reply by this course of theirs we became as often as conversation of the kind occurred convinced that these very persons abhorred the unnatural connection and yet they would not yield the point for fear of being compelled to acknowledge their real belief in the fact of their absolute inferiority yes we have often heard abolitionists remark that the time will come when all mankind will be of one color and that will be the yellow or brown as that the good work of amalgamation of negroes and white men was going rapidly on in the world and this they said with a kind of joyful anticipation as if by that means negro slavery would at last be abolished in the world thus it is evident that when a man or party of men become firmly seated on a hobby-horse its speed is never known to slack till the ruin of horse and rider is effected but although abolitionists affect to deny that they are favorable to an amalgamation of the whites and blacks this is contradicted in the speech of wendell phillips in the great london abolition convention as follows Quote, when he went to america and told them that he had seen the white man and black man walk arm in arm he should not be believed he wished to have it recorded by the british press that the colored man was to be received in the same manner as the white Close quote. pennsylvania freeman august sixth eighteen forty number two o four the doctrine is also approved of by dr browning who was a member of the london abolition convention see his speech in the pennsylvania freeman august sixth eighteen forty number two o four as follows quote, there was one circumstance he said connected with the east meaning the mohammedan countries that was peculiarly interesting and that was that there they knew of no distinction of color they had no nobility of skin white men of the highest rank married black women and black men frequently occupied the highest social and official situations oh how happy a thing it would be in the estimation of this man would the americans only pattern after the mohammedan in this thing and thus confound the two colors black and white and sin against god who made the difference not to be mingled 
but to be forever separate. But as to the abolishment of Negro slavery on such grounds as that, it can never be accomplished. For the history of the Negro nations, from the earliest ages down to the present time, furnishes abundant proof that they have enslaved their own race as much and far more cruelly than either of the other races, the white man or the red. To prove this, we adduce the following on that point. Strabo, an ancient historian, says that the Egyptians worked the machinery by which the waters of the Nile were elevated, in time of drought, to irrigate their lands, by slaves instead of oxen. To each of such machines there were attached one hundred and fifty slaves of their own color. Rollin, Volume 1, page 133. The Carthaginians, or Negro people in Africa, who at first were a colony from Phoenicia, or Old Canaan, had vast hordes of slaves of their own color, whom they not only compelled to do their labor, but also, in great numbers, sacrificed them annually to their gods as burnt offerings. Rollin, Volume 1, page 223. Hanno, an opulent citizen of Carthage, though a black man himself, had twenty thousand slaves, by which means, at one time, he attempted to usurp the government of his country, but was killed in the attempt. Rollin, Volume 1, page 266. But, in later times, we find, among the Negro tribes of Africa, the same practice. Damberger, the German traveler, in Africa, says, volume 2, pages 151 and 152, that the kings or great chiefs of the tribe called Baharas, who lived on the river Gambia, or Niger, had his subjects in such a condition of vassalage that he sold them as slaves whenever he could, not only victims taken in war, but of his own tribe and countrymen. Another nation he passed through, called Haufas, who always sold their children, when young, to other tribes, in order to avoid the trouble of taking care of them in their infancy, and then supplied their place by stealing such as were grown larger, to prevent their own tribe from running out. Damberger, Volume 2, page 158. The king of the same tribe, above named, practiced selling all his wives for slaves, at such times as he became weary of their company, obtaining new ones from among his own subjects, whether already the wives of other men or not. One tribe he found, who killed all their female children, but saved the males, stealing their wives from other tribes, or taking them in battle. This tribe were called Contorians, and inhabited a tract of country on the river Tumba, north of the Kafirs, or Hottentot region. Damberger, Volume 1, page 150. This author further states, Volume 1, page 173, in a note, that all the tribes he fell in with, except the Kafirs, dealt in slaves among themselves. These slaves they acquired in their wars, 
not instigated by white men, but by themselves, as they are seldom at peace with each other, and have not been in all past ages. Professor Russell says, page 44 of his work, that one of the chiefs of Lower Nubia, living at a place called Dur, had an army of three thousand natives, all slaves, procured from the slave dealers of Dongola, a tribe dwelling further in the interior than the Nubians, above named. With these, the tiger-man ravaged and plundered distant tribes, killing and capturing all who came in his way. Dur, his place of residence, was considered the capital of Lower Nubia, consisting, as to its architecture, of vast numbers of mud huts, in which dwelt the slaves of this horrible negro king, rolling naked in mud when it rained, and in dust, ashes, and creeping things when it was dry. M. Calebi, in 1824, made a hazardous journey to the famous negro city Timbuktu, quite in the central part of Africa, who says that the people are negroes of the Kisur tribe, and that their chiefs have all their work done by slaves, who are compelled to live separate from their masters, though they are all of one color and one kind of people. This famous city is also but a straggling, disorder mass of mud huts and dried grass, filled to overflowing with wretched, naked men and women. Family Magazine, pages 82 and 83. Why naked roam, thou negro man, in Africa's horrid wild? O'er mountains high and valleys deep, like a poor homeless child. The beasts that dwell amid the woods are happier far than you, for they have coats of fur and hair to guard from rain and dew. Your soil gives forth the native flax and other means of dress, why roam like troops of monkeys wild o'er all the wilderness? Is not your land both deep and rich to yield each year anew the annual crop would you but plant as other nations do? Why dwell in huts of grass and mud and caves and hollow trees, drenched by the rains in summer times and in the winter freeze? Is there not stone and rock, and forests deep and green, From which good houses you might build, your naked limbs to screen? Your mountains give the mineral bodes of iron and steel their birth, Of which the plough and axe are made to cultivate the earth. The diamond sparkles on your hills, their depths yield golden ore by which mankind enrich themselves and generate all power. Why roam, therefore, thou negro man, like beasts of blood and prey, naked and starved, no house or home, like a lost child astray? Ah, mighty white man, ask thou this, poor negro have no trade, he sees no flax, no stone or tree, from which such things are made? He does not know that gold and trade, with labor infinite, 
has brushed away from nature's face the gloom of ancient night his pate is thick his brain is small deep buried in the wool he does not know as white men do but lives and dies a fool o oh, white man take us from ourselves our huts our holes our caves o oh, feed and clothe us teach us too and we will be your slaves for thus it was from earliest times as we have heard decreed that ham should serve all other men and never can be freed genesis chapter nine verse twenty three joshua chapter nine verse twenty three end of section ten a